your if your IT groups or whomever are ignoring it, you are accepting those risks on behalf of the business and they aren't even informed, which is wrong, right? You can't do that. Hey everybody, welcome back. Brian Hoagley here with Sizzle Life, brought to you by Side Channel. Um, I'm excited, very excited, as I always am with these with these episodes and having guests on. But Ron Ford from Department of Homeland Security, CISA, and we're gonna have to go into what that is, has just joined me today. We met last uh, last summer, I believe, right, Ron? Um, right. At a cybersecurity conference here in the Boston area. Uh, so again, Ron Ford, uh, I serve as the regional cybersecurity advisor for, I'm gonna say this probably just once, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency underneath the Department of Homeland Security. So everyone refers to us as CISA. We love security so much that we had to put it twice in our name. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> hey, I wish everybody did, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so my role as the Cybersecurity Advisor in New England really focuses on the public and private partnership uh, engagement, as well as promoting cyber resilience for what we call critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And in a nutshell, that means that we ensure that all those organizations that we feel are critically important, where you might have a bad day if the lights don't come off, if the water is not clean, uh, if you don't get access to your bank accounts, we ensure that we are in contact with those types of companies and organizations to ensure that when something does happen, whether it's malicious or it's unintentional, that those organizations have resilience uh, built in where they can continue to operate at mm -hmm. a sustained level. And then they might call us, they might call you know, someone who they're comfortable with, whether it's law enforcement or whether it's a cybersecurity vendor to help them out. And that's where we all kind of come together to ensure that there's some type of operational resilience built into those organizations. Right, right. Yeah, and no, I, I, I love the mission, right? That's, that's an area that we've been really passionate about is helping out that demographic, that, that structure, that size company and organization. And um, right. I'm a huge fan of seeing government step forward and, and address that, right, with an area. You know, you've got the resources out of, you know, traditional resources out of FBI and Secret Service, kind of when bad things happen, kind of who do you call, right? And they've been right. kind of the go-to, but you know, how can you be more proactive? And and it's not a knock on the FBI and Secret Service, but they're more reactionary, right? Like, right. how can you gain more information, better prepare yourself? And you hit it, right? The I think there's, if yeah. I remember my history or at least my government literature correctly, there's fourteen or sixteen critical infrastructures under DHS. 16. Well, yes. there's 16 collectively. <laughs> you got it, man. You got it. Uh, there are 16 sectors right. of which DHS has, is the lead agency for quite a bit of those. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of those is, is, is cybersecurity for kind of the overall, um, overall landscape within those. And we also include in that whole critical infrastructure kind of layout. We kind of overlay it with both uh, state and local government, tribal territorial governments, as well as academia. So there's various overlays where mm. we have conduits uh, into 
into multiple different parts of those organizations as well. So my office, my agency, the uh, CISA has been around for actually quite a long time, um, over 15 years. Uh, we were a part of the headquarters element. So um, back in November of 2018, uh, Congress uh, designated us as our own subcomponent underneath DHS. So if you think about FEMA, if you think about Secret Service, uh, we're on the same playing field as them right now. So mm -hmm. we are the federal agency that's responsible for comprehensive protection uh, for the black club, as well as assisting and supporting uh, private sector organizations. Idaho National Labs is the one behind the CSET tool, right? The cybersecurity evaluation tool. And that's uh, an amazing tool that DHS has funded through Idaho National Labs uh, actually, the main writer for that, his name is Barry. I forget his last name, but big. I'll, I'll post it over here. Big shout out yeah. to that guy and the development that he's done with the CSET tool because you can literally go through, and I've watched its uh, maturity just go through the roof now um, with the versions that they have. But it's a great tool that's made available for free. Your tax dollars and mine at work that are right. available to anyone inside of the US um, to be able to use to assess themselves, assess others against regular known standards. I mean, you can pick anything from NERC SIP all the way to uh, uh, the NIST CSF standard, critical security controls. I'll bet I think they only go to version six now, so they got to update to seven. So Barry, get on that. But I mean, like that, that platform is phenomenal. And I think it's a it's a great tool and it's the type of, I think it's the type of uh, tools and capabilities that I want to see from a government, right, agency. And I think what I like, too, is there's now even a capability within that for you to use to bring DHS in to, like, help assess you to some aspects. So there's a nice kind of, like, you're not totally on your own version right. where you can kind of bring folks in. Is this an area that you're you're kind of very you know, like close to, I don't want to ask something that's, cause I know DHS is huge. So you guys got a lot going on, but. This is right in our lane. This was, and this, I believe the CSET tool was developed back in 2008, 2009. That's when I came on board to DHS. And it was one of the, probably one of the only handful of resources that we had publicly available at that time for, uh, for public release, for public use, mm. um, you know, we have absolutely grown and evolved where we have a whole kind of litany of resources available, but the CSET tool was our de facto tool because it, it actually started out in our industrial controls uh, yep. security back then. Back then it was called just, uh, uh, it was just called uh, control system security. But uh, mm. when we had CERT, ICS CERT, um, you know, back then, now it has evolved into one of the tools that we have in our tool set where you can actually use it yourself. As you said, you can uh, self-facilitate it yourself. You have a whole list of different regulations, whether it's HIPAA, whether it's NERC SIP, that you can go in and it'll auto-populate. It's a fabulous tool. I, I've, I've, I've seen it evolve as well where, you know, we had to be on site in order to help facilitate it. Now it's grown and matured to where, you know, it's fully downloadable for anyone to take advantage of, uh, just to see where they are in terms of compliance, uh, regulatory applications. We've used it uh, for also for artifact support, you know, for mm -hmm. different types of 
of certification and accreditation. So our tools are, and, and you know, you can feel free to download them. They are completely voluntary. Um, DHS insists that we hold no regulatory obligation in terms of cybersecurity. So we really do pride ourselves on making ourselves available, making the resources as accessible to organizations, both public and private, as much as possible. Uh, and we have certainly grown over the past, you know, 11 years or you know, 11 years that I've been a part of DHS, where you know now we have people out in the field who are able to help facilitate those types of resources, um, and then you know open them up to the vast amount of education uh, that DHS and the greater federal government has to offer. How do you convey that message to leadership where you can transfer it into a business risk rather mm -hmm. than just being an operational risk or a business risk? Because, I mean, most of those critical business functions are in some form or fashion being supported by technology. Right. So it really has to be tied in into that whole risk management posture and framework into the business plan, you know, mm -hmm. about how can we continue to be successful um, given the larger risk that we're taking on now, now that everything right. is either been managed, outsourced, or we're, we're building, you know, solutions in-house, what type of risk are they really um, open to, as well as, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of looking at the whole risk management model, where can they accept it, where can they transfer it, uh, you know, and where can they just not have the risk? Because mm -hmm. In today's world, not accepting or not acknowledging those types of risks can shut your business down. And, you know, it, it only takes one big breach for, you know, a company or a series of companies to really be impacted by something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll link it up above, but I did an ISC squared talk where some people said I kind of went off a little bit on the topic, but I'm just, you know, I'm passionate. Um, yeah. It was... It, it, it was really just like, you can't keep these things in the ignore bucket, right? Because you're, 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 you're actually just, if you ignore it, you are accepting the risk, but you're just not either your, if your IT groups or whomever are ignoring it, you are accepting those risks on behalf of the business and they aren't right. even informed, which is wrong, right? You can't do that. Right. If, unless you're totally empowered at that level, but most organizations don't do that, right? The the leadership kind of wants to know about risks like that, like, oh, our main backup system is on the same network and online or next to our production systems. And if one got impacted by ransomware, as an example, it's an right. easy hop, skip and a jumps to take it all down, right? We've seen that. Yep. That's a risk Absolutely. that you that leadership would would gladly say, I want to know about that and weigh in on it, because that seems like a reasonable thing to be able to address. And had I known, I would have empowered you or made the resources available to do something about it. It might not be the perfect solution, but we would come up with a solution that would be inside of the risk appetite of the organization. And you're right. right. You just don't see that the businesses being brought into the you know equation to really weigh in because that's kind of where it needs to happen. Yeah. And, and the other thing I would add to that is, I mean, especially within our agency, we try to be enablers, you know, mm. whether it's being educational, informational. The resources that we provide, both from a technical standpoint and from a risk management standpoint, they're there to inform how those key decisions can be made. You know, right. people look at cybersecurity as right now as an impediment. But if you think back to 20, 25 years ago, 
the, the username and password were an impediment. You know, people looked at it as something else that I have to do in my day. And it's, you know, something that will keep me from doing my job well. Well, right. we've moved on past that now where, you know, really have to consider how can we look at cybersecurity and risk reduction as enablers for business? Mm -hmm. um, you know, where, you know, we're looking at, you know, a lot of small and medium sized businesses are looking at it now as this huge risk area. Yes, it is a risk area. However, this enables you to do things securely and enables you to reduce the risk to your users, to your employees, um, all with the intent to help you do your job better. Is there anything that that that's like vi like really ready readily available uh, at a DHS or DHS is kind of giving as far as like hey secure work from home kind of tips tricks like either as for an individual or for companies to think about for their employees? Yeah, it's, that's a great question, and, and yes, we actually do have uh, telework guidance. It's available at cisa.gov. Um, I believe forward slash coronavirus. Uh, it gives you a lot of quick best practices about working from home now. Uh, now that we have people who are taking advantage of working from home, it introduces mm -hmm. a whole new set of risks. You know, you're doing, you know, official work on, you know, your personal network and trying to figure out, you know, configurations for your VPNs, as well as updating, you know, and doing patch management. So we have a whole list of different resources that people can take advantage of. Mm -hmm. um, where now, you know, it really has, this whole pandemic has really forced the conversation uh, to a lot of the businesses who, who have been thinking about how do we do this remotely? Mm -hmm. Now you are doing it remotely. You know, what are we doing in terms of contingency planning? Right. Um, you know, so this has really forced the conversation about, we really need to take this seriously about how can we enable uh, worker to work from home as well as do it securely, do it properly. And so, you know, CIS has been really good at trying to promote those different types of best practices as well as, you know, taking care of those essential workers. You know, that's yeah. another thing that pushed out earlier in March about who's considered essential. This is the way that CISA views them. Mm -hmm. um, this might help with uh, organizations that kind of are on the fence or indecisive about you know, what are we considered essential? You know, might, might be managed service providers that are providing services to healthcare organizations or mm. to organizations that are deemed essential. So that there's a whole cascading impact to what we consider essential where, you know, you might have to have people in place at, um, you know, at service providing facilities that need those operations to continue. And what does that, what does that essentially mean uh, to those organizations that are a being serviced as well as the servicer. So one of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm coming up with a comprehensive list of the internet service providers, both small, medium, and large within New England who are servicing certain sectors, those critical, uh, lifeline sectors so that we can understand from a risk management point of view, you know, who are those organizations that might need our assistance, who we haven't been in contact with, who are considered key, you know, mm -hmm. so we can all understand from whether it's an emergency response perspective or from a continue, contingency um, plan or a con continuity of operations perspective, 
who do we need to focus on? Because we can't focus on everyone, but it's really important for us to understand if we can do it on kind of the physical, traditional, you know, emergency response side about, you know, which hospitals are critical, you know, which ones are, um, and I'm going to butcher the kind of the, the, the lexicon of, you know, the, the trauma center uh, levels, but we need the same thing on uh, kind of the cyber risk side about, you know, who are those top tier, mid tier and low tier organizations and service mm-hmm. providers who might need our assistance because it's all about collaboration and coordination nowadays where you can't wait for something to happen. We need to exchange business cards and have these conversations mm-hmm. uh, well before something happens. And so that's part of the reasons why we have the cybersecurity advisor program, which I'm a part of within CISA, where we are providing that last mile engagement. It's really important for you know, the common citizen as well as those private organizations to understand that we do have resources out in the region. We aren't unlimited, but we do help to unearth and prioritize those risks that might not be understood and well fleshed out. So Ron, you know, unfortunately bad things happen to good companies, right? And good people. Uh, and, you know, if they haven't prepared and ideally, you know, they have, they've, you know, good, yeah. good, well-orchestrated inter- incident response plan. They've done tabletops. They know who to call, who, you know, they've got that all plotted out. That's a really great exercise for organizations to get into habit of and practice, but not everybody's done that. So sometimes they find themselves scurrying at the first time that they either see a ransomware or an attack or a data loss, or even just a, a pure availability impact. And they're just down and out. You know, who, who are they reaching out to? Is it just immediately local police? You know, we mentioned FBI and secret service, but you know, what, What's your feedback and kind of tips for organizations on, okay, now what? We really highly promote, you reach who you're comfortable with. You reach out to who you have your best partnerships with, whether it's the FBI field office or Secret Service, or it's your local or your state uh, law enforcement, or it could be your security vendor. You know, Mm -hmm. I know a lot of organizations uh, are starting to... uh, provide some type of agreements in place where they might have a cybersecurity firm just on contract, you know, just to provide those types of services. Um, What I've seen also is a lot of the uh, state and local municipalities, they are grouping together to Mm. uh, help to drive down the cost of those cybersecurity services Yep, because it's not inexpensive. Uh, Right. When you sit in response firms in place, you know, the amount of time and effort and restoration uh, can go on for quite a long time. And it, and it, it costs, you know, quite a bit of money. Yep. So what I've seen is that there are local municipalities that are starting to group together, uh, as well as they are utilizing cyber insurance as well mm-hmm. um, to help drive down some of those risks. Uh, so we say that you contact who you're most comfortable with, whether it's, you know, Jeff, who's, you know, next door, who helped to build up your IT network, or it's, you know, one of the uh, cybersecurity firms in your area that can provide you with some level of uh, incident response and restoration services. Right. Yeah, if I can illustrate the idea, I'm glad you brought up insurance. Having come out of the insurance space and, and knowing it's, it's, it's use, the, the one concept to kind of drive for people is if you have a policy right? You need to go into your policy and figure out within that what's known as the panel, right? Yep. And you, your insurance carrier, whoever it is, 
has a panel and that panel inside of it is already pre-approved vendors that you are allowed to use in case of incident response. What people need to do, and I would give my tip is, go figure out who these are today before you need them. Then go set up $0 retainers with the ones that you wanna work with. And if there's not ones in that panel, contact your carrier, have them added. Okay, you can do that, they will work with you. If there's ones on there that you don't wanna work with because you're sophisticated enough to know, have them removed. But you need to know who is in this. All of that needs to get turned into your own incident response plan and added to that with the phone numbers, you need to have analog, AKA hard copies stored because you can't rely on your phone or your laptop to be available. Do this exercise, right? This is gonna be huge. The other piece combined with this within your insurance, right? is talking to and knowing who is in the FBI, who is in the Secret Service, and I've you know told everyone my handwriting is terrible, but they just they keep watching anyway, so thank you. Go find out who who these contacts are before again, before you need them, get to know them. Like you said, exchange business cards with these folks, get their information into your incident response plan. We met at a conference, you know, uh, <laughs> last summer, you know, and all it took was a, a you know a few conversations for both of us to understand our different perspectives, how we could come together, you know, and continue to forge the you know partnership and friendship. And you know, I, I think you know a lot of what you said is really spot on about the things that we can do left of boom, you know, to help prevent those things from happening, to reduce you know to reduce the risk. Um, you know, we want to help. You know, mm -hmm. the FBI, the service the uh, incident response firms, we all want to help. And how do you do that? You know, how do you coalesce that all around? As you said, you need to build that into some type of plan. We, we always emphasize document, document, document. So Ron, I want to thank you for coming on. This is a great discussion. I'm sure we could keep talking for, uh, you know, a, a long, long time. I'm uh, unfortunately glad it took a pandemic for us to align calendars to get to get together. But uh, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. It was great to finally uh, connect with you. And, you know, I'm glad I can reach out to your viewers just about the importance of operational resilience, um, you know, not taking anything for granted, whether it's, you know, your plans, whether it's your efforts to drive down risk. You know, we have to really consider these things nowadays where we thought it was a non-issue. You know, technology and risk are now a huge issue and we all have to be responsible and accountable for that. And that's why BHS and CISA has really uh, tried to be more proactive about reaching out to organizations that, you know, are, you know, supporting kind of our daily lives. So thank you so much, Brian. No, thank you. Well said. Look, everybody out there, hope everybody's safe. Keep washing those hands. We'll get on the other side of this. We're going to get through it. And uh, we'll see you next time. So Brian Hoagley with CISO Life. Thanks again.